Welcome to the road to growth, success of an entrepreneur. We've raised the bar. Learn firsthand from successful business owners and create your own path to success. I'm going to show you how great I am. It's time to hit the road to growth with team lead of the Enriquez Group, Realtor Vinny. Today I have uh, Johnny Crowder. He is the founder and CEO of CopeNote. So the easiest way to think of it is we provide daily mental health support via text message. And we're using things like um, psychology facts, journaling prompts, exercises. And we text people those things at random times to train their brains to think in healthier patterns. And this uh, uh, business that you built is, I guess, from reading about your story, is kind of a personal journey that you kind of built out from your own personal journey to helping other people out that have similar mindsets or similar feelings, correct? Yeah, I grew up needing a tool like Cope Notes. So I created it for everybody like me who maybe isn't ready for mental and emotional health, like 501 or 601, like that fully diving in with a clinician. There were years when I wasn't ready for that, but I still wanted some kind of daily mental health support, some kind of um, maintenance and interaction around mental health. I just wasn't ready for that huge step yet. I think, um, I mean, I, so I have a, another podcast. We've been kind of putting on hold for a little while, but my partner on that, he's an artist and he talks about multiple times of, of committing suicide. And the thing that kind of helped him fight through it was, who he's going to leave behind. And I think a lot of people um, think about being about killing themselves yet. Some people take it definitely farther than others. I mean, walking through, I mean, your journey as a young, uh, young kid, what was that looking like? I mean, where was that coming from? What was happening there? Well, I grew up in an abusive household, so that didn't help. I think a lot of my mental and emotional health concerns came from that environment, just growing up, not feeling safe, not feeling valuable, especially as a toddler, which is where you're learning like, you know, what the world is like and how people behave. So I kind of learned all the wrong things about myself and other people as I was growing up. And suicide was definitely always an option for me. It became a more attractive option as I got into middle and high school and college. But I think Looking back, I really was just tired. I wasn't like, oh, I'll take my own life and I'll show everybody and they'll be sorry. It wasn't like that. It was more like feeling exhausted from hallucinating and having these mood swings and feeling depressed and anxious and not being able to sleep. Like all of these things for years had just exhausted me. And I, I thought I wanted to die, but really I just wanted to not feel all of that pain anymore. When you, when you talk about you just wanted the, um, I mean, not to die, but just kind of, I guess, a break, a kind of a separation from it all. Was it consistently abuse? Like when you're sleeping, is it just the a verbal abuse, physical abuse? I and mean, what kind of a, abuse are you talking about? So primarily I was experiencing physical abuse in the home. And unfortunately, I also experienced sexual abuse um, around like college age in my early 20s. So it was kind of like, 20 something years of different types of abuse. There was definitely some uh, mental and emotional abuse peppered in from all parties as well. I mean, I've had, I've had other people um, on the podcast that have talked about their, their own abuse and some of the people, not all the people, some of the people 
they they talk about the idea that they almost feel like they deserved it or they were supposed to get it. And they kind of had to come to that realization to overcome that. I mean, as times progress, how did you look at the idea of abuse when you were younger? I, especially when I was in elementary and middle school, I thought that's just how people treated each other. That was the example that I had. So when I would go over to my friend's house and they're, you know, I didn't observe any abuse. I was like, what the heck is going on here? What type of family is this? You know, like when people didn't raise their voice or throw things or hurt each other, I was like, what a bizarre family. And then, you know, as I got older, I was like, oh, maybe my family was not um, displaying the healthiest behavior or even the most common behavior. I just assumed it was common and healthy because I was observing it. What, I mean, what was that conversation look like with your friends and, I mean, I guess more so your friends, when when you're kind of in shock that this is a little bit different from where you live, how did they respond to you opening up about the difference, I guess? I tried to never bring it up because I didn't want to be the weird one. Um, but also, if I ever brought up like, oh, I'm scared to go home or my... I'd say like, oh, my parents are going to freak out on me. And they're like, oh, I totally get it. And I always assume that they that our definitions of like freak out or my parents will be so angry. I always thought that they understood what I was saying until I got a little older. But I never would call out not seeing that type of behavior in someone else's home because I figured, oh, maybe that's just when they don't have company over or, um, you know, God forbid I'm the weird one. And this is not normal behavior. So I kind of just purposely looked the other way so I could live in the ignorance of imagining that everybody was going through the same thing as me. When did you start kind of fighting through, I guess, the ignorance, like fighting through this is not normal. I need to talk, things like that. Um, I would say high school, but I wasn't. I think it was probably towards the end of college where I actually started taking it seriously because you, it's not just like you flip a switch and you magically take it really seriously and you're going to apply yourself to treatment. And, you know, there were moments like that. I had days like that where I was really committed, but then it would be followed by maybe weeks or months of trying to bury my head in the sand because it felt like too big of a thing to wrestle with. So I kept just trying to postpone it so when did you come to the point that I guess the postponement wasn't enough? I mean, the days, the highs, and then going back to the lows, when did you kind of start making steps, I guess, in that direction and, and start making an everyday routine? Well, I started treatment technically in high school. I think I was sophomore year of high school, but I wasn't really like an active, willing participant hmm. consistently. So it was probably, I mean, even towards the end of high school and in college, I had a terrible attitude with my doctors. So I like didn't believe in what they were telling me. I thought that they had it out for me. Um, I was judging myself a lot. So I felt really embarrassed about my diagnoses. So it was probably towards the end of college that I, I was taking psychology courses and just learning objectively about mental health not about my personal mental health because I, I would get too emotional if we talked about that but if you're talking about mental health in general just like these are statistics and this is what's happening scientifically in your brain 
I felt safer learning about mental health in that environment because it wasn't pointed at me. And as I learned in my psychology courses that medication can help and therapy can help and here, um, here's like physiologically what's going on inside of your body when you feel these things, it felt, you know, before that it felt shapeless and insurmountable. Like I had no idea how to deal with it, but reading about it in a psychology textbook and learning about it in a classroom felt, it was like giving it shape, you know? When you went to the, or got treatment in high school, who got you into those treatments? Did you do it yourself? Did someone push you into those? What happened there? So I, without getting too far into it, I used to have really bad behavior issues and anger issues. And my, after a particularly problematic outburst, my mom was basically like, either you can go to the doctor or we can call somebody and have them take you to the doctor, which is Florida speak for like, are you trying to get Baker acted right now? So I was like, fine, I will go. And it was, I'm laugh about it now. It was a really serious situation back then. But I always say that my mom forced me into treatment because I did not, I mean, I was like proverbially kicking and screaming the whole way. And I was a total brat to the first clinicians that I met. I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know me. Like shutting them down and not listening. Um, I, I definitely wouldn't have sought treatment if it wasn't for my mom. And in fact, even in my first couple of years of treatment, I wasn't seeking treatment. I was just like attending mandatory counseling, you know, because I had to. I felt like I didn't have a choice. Now, was it your uh, I'm guessing that the abusive aspect of it wasn't your mom then when you were younger? Um, I do my best not to to dive into that. Yeah, just to because both my parents are alive and we're we're working okay. on um, building healthy relationships right now. Okay. So it, it at least sounds like, and, and maybe it was out of not knowing what to do, that your mom was at least trying to push you in the right direction. So to my mom's credit, she had taken psychology courses. So she does um, <clears throat> stenography. Yeah. So she will translate for deaf and hard of hearing students. So she said to take all these different types of courses, like college courses, to translate them. And she had taken psychology courses. So I think there were parts of her that recognized throughout my entire life, even when I was younger, like there's probably something mental health related going on because she had a, a higher degree of health education than other people in my family. Now, you're in high school, you're taking some sessions you're not really fully for it you're kind of forced into doing it yet in college you start taking some psychology classes where did that interest in learning about that stuff come about so i actually started taking college level psych in high school okay. so i started my junior year of high school i took junior and senior year college level psychology because i to be honest, I wish I had a more noble reason, but really I just wanted to figure out what was happening in my brain and like prove my counselors wrong. Like I, I was like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to take psychology and then I'll learn for myself what the real deal is. And then I take psychology courses and I'm like, shoot, my doctors are right. And the more that I learned, the more I, w I was becoming less afraid of my diagnoses and more aware of how to deal with them. And then also I was developing a desire to help other people who had been through what I've been through. 
And my plan was to, um, when we were meeting with like a college readiness person in high school and they're like, what are you going to do for college? I said, I'm not going to college because my band's going to get signed and we're going to tour the world and I'm going to be a rock star. And my college readiness person was like, whatever, you got to go to school. So I went to college because I had a full ride scholarship through the IB program that I was attending. And I was in college for a year and a half. I picked psychology because I felt like, you know, my parents were pressuring me not to pick something like music or writing, which is what I really wanted to do. Um, they, everyone wanted me to pick like a real major. So I picked psychology, having no idea that it would influence the course of the rest of my life. So, so as you're, you're taking the classes, you're becoming more understanding of the diagnosis that you received and kind of saying, Hey, that is me. Was there a kind of a, a moment when you go, okay, this is me. I can't put a blind eye to it. I need to figure out how to just make the days better. I don't, you know, I gave a, I gave a Ted talk about how I don't, my life hasn't had a moment like that. I've always okay. wanted to be able to tell that story like, Oh, yeah. and this was the moment everything changed. But there were a lot of really tiny moments um, where I realized that my behavior was affecting the people around me. And that's what really, I think those things shook me more than realizations that I was harming myself or that I was in harm's way. I wasn't super concerned about that, but when I realized like, oh, my suicidal tendencies make my significant other afraid mm -hmm. that she might wake up one day and I might not be here and that's causing distress in her life. I'm like, okay, now it's starting to feel serious. So there were moments like that where, you know, it was hard for me to develop compassion for myself. But the moment I realized that it was hurting other people, I shouldn't say the moment, I should say the moments because there were teeny tiny little glimpses into that where the distress in my life was causing distress in the lives of other people. And I was like, Oh, that's just not right. You know? Yeah. Do you like, was your partner at that time, um, very forthcoming to that information or like, did they, how did, how did you know that you were making a dent in their life? So there were, <laughs> well, also when you're in, this was when I was in my early twenties and you know, sometimes your girlfriend just cries and you can't figure out why or what's going on. She says she's fine and she's like, nothing is wrong. And you're like, well, obviously something is wrong because you're crying. There were moments like that um, where I'll never know the actual reason she was crying. But there also were some moments where she was like, I'm afraid that you're going to die and it's going to cause this huge trauma in my life where I will be in love with someone who passes away. And that's a lot of pressure to feel every night when I go to bed. And I'm like, shoot, I didn't realize you were going through all that. You know, that sucks. Like, I don't want to put you in that situation. You're the only person that, especially at this point in my life, I didn't, I felt like I didn't love anybody. I only loved her. So I was like, shoot, I'm causing damage to the pretty much the only person that I love and the only person who's trying to help me. And I can't keep doing that. I have to do something. So what did you do? Um, she, that's funny. She got me this book that was about, um, 
like training your brain to think more positive thoughts. And I was like, what a load of BS. I was so mad about it. And I was like, what are you trying to say that I'm a negative person? I'm not going to read this crap. And um, I was leaving for tour at the time with my band and brought the book anyway. And then I wound up reading like almost the entire book at the very beginning of tour. And I just like was tearing it apart, just like page after page. I was like, holy crap, this is fascinating. I never knew the brain worked like this. And this is so interesting. And then I just started reading and listening to a bunch of stuff about mental and emotional health. Not necessarily that I was getting a ton better. I was getting a little bit better. But I think the openness to engage with content like that was kind of a big step for me. What what um what instruments did you play or what did you for for your band? I sing on stage and I play guitar off stage. Did you do you write your music too? Mm-hmm. Now I mean I know we kind of just jump out top a little bit. Do you feel a difference to how you wrote your stuff before I guess that moment to after that moment of kind of realizing who you are, your person, things like that? I will again, not to be a stickler, but there I, I really haven't had like one moment like a before and yeah. after I've had. It's been very gradual, but before I used to think me writing a song for months at a time meant that I was a good songwriter and I cared a lot about what I did. But, yeah. you know, I was nervous about getting healthier because I was like, well, all I write about is feeling frustrated and um, hurt. So if I get healthy, then what the heck am I going to write about? And am I going to lose all my creativity? But in fact, as I got healthier, gradually, it took me less and less time to write songs because I wasn't standing in my own way. Like, I didn't realize that my depression and my anxiety and my frustration and anger were actually holding me back from being creative. So as I've gotten healthier, music has become easier. I don't know if that's the right word. It's like easier for me to engage with. It's easier for me to write. I have I'm I enjoy writing more now than I used to. And before I was definitely this like tortured, starving artist persona that I thought I was supposed to be. But now I'll like be in the shower and I'll come up with a riff or a melody or something. It just like comes to my head now. But before I'd have to spend months trying to think of something. Are you still in a band today? Oh yeah. Okay. Does uh I mean, do your do your fans do they ever give you any kind of feedback? Of I mean, they see the difference in the <laughs> earlier stuff to now. Do you ever get anything like that? Or all the time on my uh, so on my TED Talk video, every once in a while I go on there to check comments and stuff. And one of my favorite comments is like, "I can't believe this is the guy from Dark Sermon." And that's like my old band where we were, we used to write really negative lyrics, and it was like really i was just this angry dude and now they're seeing me like smiling and speaking clearly and they're like what the heck i can't believe this is that guy i love comments like that because it's i can't believe it either i'm like the last person to i never expected myself to live the life that i'm living today i thought that i would be incapable of functioning on a daily basis for the rest of my life I mean, you, you talked about the idea that you haven't really had, I guess, that true moment, that that one main moment that kind of transitioned you. And was there a, at least a, a moment that you felt you were okay helping other people out? 
right? You you've done enough to yourself where you can at least provide that information to other people. I started before I was okay. Okay. And that's my encouragement to people. Like there are people listening to this right now, I bet, who are thinking, oh, well, I'm not healthy enough to help somebody else. Or even like related to entrepreneurship, I hear people say, oh, I'm not far enough along in building my company to help somebody else. That's a load of BS. Like you have a different perspective and that's what makes you valuable. You don't have to be the CEO of a billion dollar company to lend your perspective to somebody else. And it's the same is true for mental health. Like you don't have to be perfect in every area of your life in order to provide support for somebody else. I don't think anybody who provides support for anybody is perfect in the first place. That's like one of the biggest lies. Well, yeah, I had a, I had a, a coach on here a while back and they talked about the idea that there's different coaches for each part of your life and each part of your business, right? So we're all on a journey, right? Yet to get me from point A to point B, I might need one platform, one person, but to get me from B to C is going to give me another person and it's going to make it easier. Like, I mean, I know, I mean, I have other people on here where they're small mom and shop businesses and them trying to relate with a, a Jeff Bezos or something like that. Someone yeah. all the way up there is like, well, okay. Oh, you just buy a new person. This takes care of this. Like, no, I want to talk to the person that was in my shoes just a couple years back. And exactly. Years ago, whatever it is, and I can tell me. So, yeah, it's we all have something to, to, to give to the next person below us. I've uh, heard I always say that I've heard great Coke Notes ideas from people who have never worked in tech, who have never worked in mental health. I mean, like UPS drivers and waitresses and, you know, my aunt, like people just positing ideas who have no have no idea what we're working on. But their perspective, they're like, you know, these people lived a completely different life than me and they view it from a different angle and they might see something that you were blind to like that. They don't need credentials to offer that insight into your blind spot. So when did the idea of cope notes uh, come around? Well, I was providing peer support and volunteering in the mental health public advocacy space for years. I started doing that in 2011 and um, I was doing that on tour. So I was providing peer support like in groups and and one-on-one -on, -one on tour. So different city every day before and after the concert. And I was frustrated by how unscalable it was. Like we're in a city for 12 hours, maybe. And then I leave and I might not be back for six, nine, 12 months. And I'm like, what are these people supposed to do when I leave? Like, I don't want, I don't like the idea of being that inconsistent. So after doing that for years, I started something called Not a Therapist, which you probably can't find on the internet now because I took the website down. But it was a peer support resource that was digital. So once I left somebody's city, they could book time with me after I left. And we could hold the call on like um, Facebook Messenger. We could just message each other or text or Skype. And then a lot of people started choosing text. And a lot of people started saying... I wish this was anonymous and I wish I didn't have to book appointments. And as more people started using not a therapist, more parts of it started breaking. Like it just was not built to scale either. So I created cope notes to address the complaints. I should say critiques um, that people had about not a therapist, but also to scale infinitely so that we could serve like 
literally 50 million people at the same time without needing any attention from me because sometimes I need to drive or eat or sleep. Well, well let's go back to that the original. So you're in different communities on tour and would you so you you're advertising for the the concert yeah and then you would advertise too for like kind of get together or kind of a, a self-help how are you how are you putting those together it was literally just a tiny card on our merch table uh-huh. we had all of this you know like t-shirts and wall flags and backpacks and basketball shorts and all of our merch and then there was this little tiny card on the table on the center of the table that just said like, Hey, if you need peer support, let's chat. And then enough people would see that throughout the course of the concert where they're like, yeah, let's talk outside. And we would like have discussion groups. It was actually really cool. It's like a bunch of, you know, I would straight up tell people like it was called not a therapist because I was like, I just wanted to be super clear. Like I am not a clinician and I won't be able to solve anything in your life. I'm just like you. I'm like in the same hole that you're in. So I can't pull you out of it if I'm in it, but I can at least identify and relate. And that that's ultimately, I think what people wanted. And that's what I wanted too. How many people, if any, were coming to this, not a therapist kind of event, I guess, uh, they were really weren't there to be kind of help or grow, but more so just to be part of your circle that you I mean, you see an artist, you're like, Oh my gosh, I want to, had the one-on-one time or that kind of small kind of time with him. Was there people like that that were coming? I think sometimes it would start like that. But by the end, when you hear everybody sharing about what they're going through, you can't help but be like, oh, dude, when I was seven years old or, you know, it's like you can't bite your tongue. You might, that might be your intention originally is like, I'm going to go hang out with the band. And then, you know, five, 10, 15 minutes in, you're like, Ooh, I want to share something, you know? And it just kind of like, it softened people up a little bit. Now your, your girlfriend, your, your partner at the time, uh, she was very supportive. She gave you the book. What about your bandmate? I'm assuming you spent a lot of time with, with them <laughs> you know, on the road yeah. all the time. I, I probably didn't talk to them as much about what I was going through as I could have. But I also didn't, and not to sound mean, because a lot of people in my life weren't very supportive of what I was going through at the time, um, but I didn't feel like I was getting a lot of support from my band. So I spent a lot of time with people that I didn't really feel mentally or emotionally supported by, which was really, really challenging. If let's say someone's listening right now, I mean, with all the stuff you've gone through, and maybe they're in that situation where they're they have a don't really have a support system. I mean, they have this not negative, but people that maybe just couldn't hear them. What kind of advice would you give them? There's eight billion people, <laughs> okay, on the planet. Like I felt, I, I made my circle small because I thought I was protecting myself. Mm. So I was like, oh, I'll just stick. You know, I'll talk to my girlfriend. I'll talk to my band. Then I'll basically shut myself off from everybody else. And I thought that I was I was keeping myself safe by doing that. But in fact, I wound up spending a majority of my time with people who I didn't feel supported by. So if you, you know, all the time I hear people say, oh, my, you know, my coworkers don't support me in this thing. And I'm like, that sucks. And that needs to be addressed. But in the meantime, because you can't flip a switch and fix that, who do you know? You must know somebody in your entire life in 20, 30, 40, 50 years You've met somebody who will listen 
And if you don't talk to that person regularly, regularly hit them up. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And I guess as you're growing this into Cope Notes, you probably had to reach out to people that were in your direct sphere to build stuff that maybe you were you were kind of lacking at. Oh yeah, I I am like the classic DIY bootstrap founder that was like googling how to code things and having the website crash and just having freaking no clue what I was doing like hacking together a product to put it out in the market. And I reached out to people that I really didn't know very well at all or complete strangers. And it would just be like, "Hey, my name is Johnny and here's what I'm building. Do you remember me if we had met? And a lot of times I didn't, or it's someone that I had never met before. And I'm like, Hey, I, I am acknowledging that we don't know each other, but here's what I'm building. And I would love your opinion. And lots of people didn't respond, but a few people did. And I still work very closely with them today. So it, it, you could reach out to a hundred or a thousand people and it only takes one or two or three um, for you to have a much better chance at successfully building what you're trying to build. But I will say that if you really think you're going to go it alone as an entrepreneur and you're not going to like ask anybody for help, I don't want to sound discouraging, um, but you're making it way harder for yourself than it has to be. Just ask people for help. Worst they can say is no. And you're in the exact same position you were in five minutes ago. That idea of being okay with no, was that something you had at that time when you first started reaching out to people or? I thought I had it from music. Like, you know, we'd submit for tours and get denied. We'd turn in our demos to labels and get denied. But the frequency with which you are um, rejected as an entrepreneur is like unmatched. I mean, like literally hundreds and thousands of people say no to you in a row. Like in a single day, you might be rejected 40, 50, 60 times. And that gets really challenging and you you do build a thicker skin. It's just tough. Like if you're a salesperson, you feel like, well, they're saying no to the product, right? Like, you know, I, I sell life insurance. They're saying no to life insurance. But if you built the product, it feels so much more personal. Like they're saying no to me and my baby. So getting over that is something I still work on to this day. What is there some like, what do you tell yourself to get past that to to say it's okay? I mean, on to the next person, work I mean, your story better. I mean, what do you do? So on our on our company culture sheet, on um our core beliefs, one of the core beliefs is we do not take rejection personally, or rejection is not personal. Mm -hmm. And the phrase that I use to help myself feel better about it is one of the biggest bands in the history of the world is called Slipknot. It is a metal band. Even if you've never listened to metal, you probably know who Slipknot is. That's how big and iconic they are. They've sold millions upon millions of record records. And every time they come through, I live in Tampa, every time they play the amphitheater, sold out. Like tens of thousands of tickets. I mean, they are absolutely iconic, legendary, massive. And most people can't stand them like if i walk into a library and i turn on slipknot almost everybody there is going to leave like almost everybody doesn't like slipknot so i use that as a 
as an encouragement to myself because it's relevant to me because I love music. But I'm like, if one of the most iconic bands in the history of music is rejected by 99.999% of all music listeners, then I shouldn't be too hard on myself if some healthcare system isn't interested in working with Cope Notes this year, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, I think it's true for a lot of us. Don't, don't take it personal. And I mean, rejection is just part of life. Um, mm. If let's say we're talking in five years from now, where's Johnny going to be? Where is Cope Notes going to be? I want to be doing a lot more public speaking. So it's something I did a lot before Cope Notes for years. And then I was doing a lot in the first couple of years of Cope Notes. And then when COVID hit, I was doing much less public speaking. I do a little bit. Um, I do like a couple remote or like virtual events. But really, I want to get back into speaking at conferences and fundraisers and getting out there and doing like the the real advocacy work, which is where my heart is. Um, I expect Cope Notes to be obviously much larger over the next five years, but probably do do in large part to partnerships with really large community organizations. So whether that's like your local mental health association or through your YMCA, through your school district or your employer, your health insurance provider, even like your city or county, like where you live geographically, we're working on more of those partnerships so that we can work top down. Like instead of trying to convince individually, like a million individuals to use Cope Notes, if we can work with one county administrator to impact a million lives, it's just, it's a much more efficient way to get urgent care into the hands of people who need it. I mean, you're talking about um, more speaking engagement, building your brand. I mean, you could kind of see your face light up a little bit when you're talking about the speaking engagements. Uh, what do you, what do you, what do you get out of those speaking engagements? Um, I am a communicator by trade, I guess. Like I was a copywriter for work before Cope Notes and I, I was a performer. So I write lyrics and, and sing on stage and then I did speaking. And so I've always loved communicating and the coolest part about speaking, probably the reason why you see me light up so much now around it is because for the last year and a half, so I've been building Cope Notes for like four years-ish. Um, but for the last year and a half, it's been me and my computer, like sitting here. And we're still, we're impacting, we have 21,000 users in 94 countries. So we are impacting people all over the world with like much needed valuable life changing life saving mental and emotional health support every day but i don't feel that i feel like i'm sitting at my computer it doesn't i don't see like the human element of it but when i go speak at a conference and i see people and hear people and we can communicate it it feels so much more encouraging and gratifying and i feel more of a sense of community than i do sitting at my computer you know do you do you uh how do you and this I'll, I'll leave with this question right here how do you feel um social media being online has affected um basically mental health i mean because it's easier i think for people to say things when they're not face to face with you 
and I mean, relative to, to to actually taking in the stuff when they're not face to face with you? How do you think it's affected uh, mental health? I want to compliment sandwich this. So I don't want to just say social media is the devil. Delete everything off your phone. Um, I think that social media has provided a sense of community to me in the last year and a half that I wouldn't have had otherwise by being able to see photos of my friends when I can't be with them and to like watch their Instagram stories of them petting their dog or something. I'm like, Oh man, I wish I could see them. It's so cool. So there are those cool elements of community that you can get. That's obviously not in-person community, but still can help you feel kind of connected. The danger there is like the dopamine side of things like checking Instagram or Facebook or something for notifications or to see what's new in the feed or mainly to distract yourself and occupy your brain so you don't have to deal with your own life. Um, there's lots of negatives to social media. I took a, a week off of social media and felt more successful. I'm not even joking. Like when, because all, all of my friends are run bigger companies than me and are touring in bigger bands than mine. So when you're always reminded of how much more other people have accomplished, you can feel like you haven't really accomplished very much. So taking a week outside of it, I'm like, man, I'm not even worried about what other people are doing. It was a good feeling. So I do recognize that there are negatives The the end of the compliment sandwich. So first I said sense of community. Next I said, there's lots of toxicity and taking a break from it made me feel good. So that's not necessarily a positive for social media, but the last little piece the the second slice of bread for the compliment sandwich is there is a way to leverage social media for the benefit of your mental and emotional health. It just requires so much consciousness around your use and consumption of mental health like unfollowing almost every single person that you don't know like most people wouldn't do that and then setting a time limit on your phone my buddy sets a uh limit on his phone i don't maybe there's an app that does it where it only allows him like 15 minutes of facebook every day or something like that that conscious limiting makes you choose like am i going to watch some random video of an influencer talking about how rich they are or am i gonna watch the video of my aunt holding my niece who i have yet to meet in person like it makes you choose to use it more consciously so there is a way to control it i don't know that social media is a net negative but i also don't know that it's a net po positive it it the onus is on us to choose how we use it yeah i mean i, it, I think it gives us the the ability for for so much yet you have to have controls on like you're saying um well, I mean, I, I appreciate you be, being here, Johnny. Um, hopefully everyone listening got some great nuggets. I mean, it doesn't, I mean, we're all going through some stuff. Some people, I think, I mean, worse than others. I mean, Cope Notes, I love what you're doing out there. It allows basically that constant reassurance, the finding real information, because you're, you're talking about that you're giving out, I mean, nuggets of information out there where I could probably go online and put something in there. And I'm going to get probably 20 different people telling me 20 different things, why I should do this, do that, do this. But at least it's one source and kind of you're vetting these people, vetting the information and vetting the, um, what should be soaked into each person right there. So I, I love what you're doing. I would also say that that's like one thing that I don't want to put on everyone's plates is like, not everybody should have to pursue a psychology degree 
to have like a basic level of understanding around how to manage their own mental and emotional health. So picture like us taking that longer term education and all of these, like combing through all of these articles and studies and lectures to distill down the little nuggets, like you said, things that you can carry with you. And you don't have to worry like, is this really true? Or where did they find out about this? Because we have a clinical oversight panel whose entire job is to make sure that what we text you is legit. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Uh, hopefully everyone out there, uh, please subscribe, please share, and go get Coke Notes. And then every, all Johnny's information. Thank you for listening to The Road to Growth, Success of an Entrepreneur. Please like, subscribe, and stay connected. Visit www.TheEnriquezGroup.com. Yeah, I created a website. Hope to see you again next week. The Enriquez Group, signing off.